The reading this morning is from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her, and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, "'What do you have against me, man of God?' Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
It's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be here speaking before you this morning. I've been so excited since I found out from Bob about 8 o'clock this morning that I'd be giving the sermon. And, uh, <laughs> you joker. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of funny. Bob and I do like to talk about running a lot, and it's something that I really enjoy. And so I like to give Bob advice, but I like to give him the wrong advice. And so I'd be like, Bob, man. There's no such thing as a bad carb. You need to ignore the media. Like, before you run, you've got to be pounding some serious candy if you want to have a good effort out there. And this, uh, this whole minimalist thing, it's the real deal. So take off your shoes, just bare feet, and get on those sidewalks. And, uh, you know, like, you've got to lighten up a little bit if you want to be at your best. So make sure you don't drink water for a few days if you're getting out there in the heat. You want everything going for you. Um, man. Uh, it's an absolute privilege to be able to serve here in this church with you all. And uh, I can say I have really enjoyed this past, I guess, 11 months that we've been here now. And so um, my wife, Brittany, and I came here from Indiana, um, came here from Tennessee. And we really have enjoyed getting to know you folks in the church. And I love working with the students here at IU. Um, and uh, I can say one of the things I enjoy most about working with students is just being able to have conversations about life, uh, what faith in Christ is all about, how does that operate in the way that we view all of our situations, the way that we view our calling, the way that we view relationships, and it's, it's a lot of fun. I like to ask questions, and one of the questions, I have to get a little plug in here while I've got the opportunity, all right? Um, one of the questions I like to ask students is, so what do you feel like right now would be the one thing that would really launch you in your growth and your spiritual life. And one thing that I hear all the time is, man, I would love to be able to spend some time around some older adults and just learn from their experience and hear how God worked in their life as they walked through the things that I'm walking through right now. So let me encourage you. Um, you guys have a huge opportunity to serve here. We'd love to get you involved in students' lives. And so, you know, maybe you should invite somebody to lunch and ask me to join you with them so you don't feel uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> Or maybe you should come to Connection sometime on Sunday nights during the school year. We meet right out here in the gathering space or in here in the sanctuary. We'd love to have you just so you can uh, build those relationships and uh, God will really bless that. You know, one of the things that often comes up when I'm having these conversations, it, this question is formed in a lot of different ways in a lot of different contexts. You know, relationships, school, vocation, family, friends, all these different realms. Uh, but the question is this, how can I trust that God is wise and sovereign and his plans are good when I don't understand why things are happening the way that they are? And I can't say I especially enjoy the way things are unfolding. That's a great question, and I'm sure we've all got it figured out, right? Um, not at all. We've had several students this year where I'm having conversations with them, and I'm like, man, I don't really know what to say. And I'll just be like praying there in the midst of the conversation because I don't really have anything to offer in this case. You know, we've had several students where after a time of praying and waiting, God has provided the job they've hoped for and waited for only to start the job and realize they actually don't enjoy it at all and they feel totally discouraged on a daily basis and kind of trapped. Uh, I know another student who came to college as a gifted athlete really feeling led by God to participate on the team to which they came, only to be hampered so badly by injuries that they're barely even able to compete at the level they were at in high school. It's so frustrating to see things like this. 
You can be so sure of what God is doing in your life in one minute, and things can be so unclear the next. I'm sure you have stories like this of your own. How can God's direction seem so clear one minute and then so unclear the next? Good thing we older folks have this figured out and we don't have to worry about stuff like that anymore. Uh, so we're continuing this week in our series, Ancient Stories, Contemporary Truths. And we heard about a time in the life of Israel last week that could well be described as one of those situations that we're talking about. What could the sovereign God be doing in this situation where it seems like we're only moving backwards? Um, it doesn't seem that there could be a purpose that anything positive could come from what's going on. So the southern and northern kingdoms of Israel are divided. What might the sovereign God be doing? Today's story about the prophet Elijah is going to begin our exploration of his life and ministry. And this man's got a pretty strange story himself. So in beginning to understand him, let's take a look at the context a little bit. I think it's really helpful for us understanding who this guy is and what God really called him to do. So Elijah's life is set against the backdrop of a religiously pluralistic unfaithful Israel. Ahab, Israel's king, had willfully married Jezebel, a daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, in a union arranged by his father Omri to solidify the political relations between the two nations. So Ahab had compromised his faithfulness to Yahweh but not, by not only allowing the worship of other gods, but even supporting it governmentally. He constructed an altar and a temple in Israel's capital city of Samaria, and even worshiped Baal himself. His government even supported financially 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, supported governmentally this false worship. Israel did not go uninfluenced by this. The people's hearts strayed from Yahweh and went into trusting after these false gods. So after 14 years of this, we read in the early part of the story you just heard that God called Elijah to Samaria to pronounce upon the Israelites the covenant curses that were a promised result if they were unfaithful to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and we can even refer to that in Deuteronomy. Here are the words that helps us to understand what Elijah was really saying. This is Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 17. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down before them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. So this is a curse for unfaithfulness. There shall be no dew or rain. This is a huge statement. Uh, one thing you need to understand is in the Near East, the dew is so heavy in the mornings that it's actually like rain. So the land could go without rain for a long period of time, and they'd still be fine. So to say there's going to be no dew or no rain, that's a huge statement. Israel will be in big trouble. <laughs> Their food supply is going to dwindle. There will be a famine throughout the land. Uh, surely Ahab, one of the most powerful people in the world, would not have been pleased to hear this news, and he probably didn't take it very seriously. Surely, if this message would need to mean something serious, God would choose the right person to do that, right? Someone with stature and credibility. Well, uh, Elijah doesn't exactly fit the bill, that description. So the text tells us very little about Elijah. Uh, perhaps the best way of interpreting the Tishbite from Tishbe may be that this guy was nobody from nowhere. Um, it's from a geographically isolated area in Gilead, 
which is across the river uh, from Samaria. He had no pedigree or education worthy of mention by the author. Um, a very insignificant past. You know, this is kind of like today. Don't you think if we're going to have some action of major sweeping spiritual renewal in the United States, isn't it going to come from one of these big-name pastors in New York or L.A. or Chicago, someone that we all know and has written some cool books? Um, what if it came from, like, this guy from rural Appalachia who's just been, like, a good, faithful, hanging out on the farm kind of guy, you know? This is pretty much who Elijah was. Um, he didn't have that reputation and credibility and great stature that one would have expected. Oh, this makes sense. God would use him. It seems we may have another case of God choosing the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's not my idea. Um, so Elijah's news of this impending drought was not just bad news for the Israelites, it was an in-your-face assault against Baal. The supposed God of weather, fertility, food, life. This is really questioning. Who has the power over the elements in life? Yahweh or Baal? So, we see that God made good on his promise. Uh, he brought about the drought. And it must have been really bad because he immediately sent Elijah into hiding in the Kareth Ravine in this rural region east of the Jordan where he was from. Uh, evidently, it was important Elijah was in hiding. We see later in this First uh, Kings story, in chapter 18, when Elijah finally came out of hiding after three years, we hear that there was no nation or kingdom where Ahab had not sent men searching for him. So as our story reads, God sustained Elijah in this ravine during the drought with water from a brook and food brought to him twice daily by a raven. This is clearly divine provision. Uh, I don't know if there are any ornithologists out there, but ravens are notoriously self-centered creatures. Ravens don't even feed their own young, uh, let alone take food to a prophet. Uh, the only way this could be happening is if God was in it somehow. Uh, so God used this animal to provide for Elijah in a miraculous way, and the food kept coming. It's an amazing story. But as we read, at the same time, slowly but surely, like the rest of the water in Israel, the brook went dry. Dry, crackly ground, kind of like Griffey Lake. Has anybody been out there recently? It's like Griffey Field. Looks terrible. So we got a Griffey Brook here on our hands. I imagine Elijah standing there, just looking at this brook. I don't think there was much to do in the Kareth Ravine. And it's a funny place to put a prophet, don't you think? Don't prophets normally need someone to talk to in order to fulfill the calling that God has put in their life? So here he is, chilling in this ravine all by himself, watching the brook that God had provided for him slowly dry up. You know, I wonder if he was thinking, how's God going to provide for me here? He put me here, right? Maybe he'll provide a spring. Maybe an animal is going to start bringing me water. Instead, he just sat there and waited and watched it dry up. So when the brook was good and dry, God spoke to him and immediately sent him to Zarephath. It's kind of funny that he immediately sent him when it was dry. Like, why didn't he give him a little more time? If it was that immediate, why didn't you tell me earlier? I don't know if you guys have ever felt like that. Uh, and so it was nice that he had a plan. Even a bad plan is better than no plan. But going to Zarephath probably wasn't something that he would have been all that excited about. I'm sure... Uh, 
um, you're probably not a specialist in Near Eastern geography, as I had no idea where the heck Zarephath was until I looked it up. This city was 100 miles north in Sidon, which is the heart of Baal worship country. This is the heartland of his enemies. And so when Elijah found out that he was going here, I'm sure he probably wasn't too pleased, you know, thinking maybe, all right, God, I hope this is a good plan. I guess this is what you're saying I should do. A long journey with limited resources and a bounty on his life to a destination that he certainly wouldn't have chosen himself. God not only told Elijah to go there, but his word choice was to dwell there. And uh, dwell is a long-term kind of word. I'm not too keen on it when God tells me to dwell in a place I don't want to be. So God tells him he'll provide for him there as he hides in the land of his enemies through a very unlikely source, a widow. Usually people provide for widows, not the other way around. That must have been pretty humbling to this guy. Elijah comes into Zarephath and he sees the woman at the town gate. He asks her for water and bread. So she recognizes he's an Israelite and tells him that as surely as his God lives, she has nothing left but enough for her and her son to eat one last meal before they die. Uh, In high school, I had to read a lot of books I didn't particularly enjoy. Uh, One of those was Dr. Zhivago. And this line seems like it's straight out of Dr. Zhivago. It's just like this tragic scene. It's like, oh man, like here you are in a bad situation and you just like framed it really eloquently, but it's absolutely devastating. Um, This is a Dr. Zhivago situation. And so Elijah tells her, do not be afraid. And he challenges her. He asks her to use the last of her oil and flour to bake bread for his provision. And in turn, God will not allow her supply of oil and flour to run out before the droughts end. This is asking the woman to take a huge step of faith that the living God can actually provide. Not the God of her land, the living God of Israel. The woman responds with miraculous faith, with amazing faith, and God miraculously provides, just as Elijah had said he would. Again, God's made good on his his promise. Then we have a really strange plot twist. One day, the woman's son gets sick. Things get worse, and after a time, he dies. Are you kidding me? After all this, after that miraculous provision, now he dies? This doesn't seem to make sense. The woman is devastated. Why would the living God of Israel allow this to happen? We were about to perish, and then you saved us, and now my son gets sick and dies? This is cruel. The woman asks Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Did you come to bring my sin into remembrance and kill my son? Elijah says, Give me your son. He takes him up into his room in private. Imagine what must have been going through Elijah's mind. After all of this, this is where your path is leading? This son is dead after you provided for us? After you've led me here? Listen to what Elijah says. Have you? Have you brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? 
Elijah doesn't say to the woman, how dare you ask this question? He doesn't scold her for her lack of faith. He's right there with her. Elijah stretches himself out across the boy three times, an expression of the need for a transfer of life back to the boy, and cries out to God in intermingled hope, desperation, and faith. Oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return into him. It's amazing. God hears the prayer and he chooses to resurrect the boy. This is actually the first time in scripture that we see a resurrection from the dead. And interestingly enough, it's of a Gentile. It's not even a Jewish person. God's grace acted in a mighty way. We can't put a finger on it. So Elijah brings the boy down from the room to her mother who cannot help but respond Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of your Lord in your mouth is truth. God truly held the power over life. He was able to provide, and he did. Imagine the sigh of relief that Elijah must have breathed. It's an amazing story of divine provision. So when we look at these stories ancient stories, contemporary truths. What what does this mean to us today? I think there's a lot to be gleaned from this story. The stories clearly portray that there is one true living God, the living God of Israel, not Baal. This God who is present and active and able, who works out his sovereign will in every event the ones that seem overtly divine, the provision of food from a raven, the unending supply of flour and oil, the resurrection of the woman's son, and her resulting faith in God. It's overtly divine. But God has his hand just as much in the ones that seem to be solely of natural cause, the drying of the brook that sent him to Zarephath, the death of the son that resulted in the woman's faith, and the proving power of the living God. This God alone is wise and provides what his people truly need, even when they don't see it or understand it. The drought God brought to Israel served as a catalyst in beginning the process that would eventually send this nation on the path of repentance away from idols that would never provide, back to the following of the one true God. So in the case of Elijah, God always provided Maybe not in the way he was expecting, but in the way that he needed it. It may not have been readily discernible, but God gave him what he truly needed. So let me ask you, when you look at the way the story of your life is unfolding, what is it you truly need? And I don't want to for a minute discount the realities of a difficult and complex life, uh, that can ultimately, um, that can weigh us down at times. But ultimately, Scripture teaches us that we have one major need, one ultimate need. What we need most, what this story portrays, and what I have realized in my own life and situations that God has put me in, is that what I need most is the favor of the living God. And the good news is this. We don't have to sit here and wait for a revelation 
saying, well, uh, I hope God has a plan for me without any assurance as we walk through difficult times. God has shown up and he has secured his favor for us. Paul says it best, I think, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven, and on earth under Christ. Isn't that amazing? All that we've been needing, all that we've been waiting for has been secured on our behalf. The favor of the living God is ours when we believe in faith in him. This grace that saves us from the penalty of our sin keeps saving us, sustaining us, proving sufficient for us while we live out our lives. This good news is able to frame our situations And allow us to live with peace and joy and hope from a constant and true source as we walk the often puzzling path of life. So like we talked about earlier and we see in this story, the way our lives unfold as followers of God does not always make sense to us. But faithfulness is not about absence of doubt and struggle. It's about living in the midst of it dependent on God's provision and his wisdom and his ability to provide what we truly need and praying us that he would remind us of who he is and what he's done and what he can do and reminding us that ultimately one day it's all going to make sense. He's going to bring it all together. We'll be in his presence and it's going to be clear. We'll see him face to face. So as we continue to study uh, the story of the life of Elijah and his ministry, the role that God had him in the redemptive process of his people. We're going to see that God really used these events to prepare him for something. God built in Elijah the robust faith and dependence that he would need to accomplish the works God had appointed for him in his life and his ministry. So when you look at your life, God may well be doing the same. Or maybe... Also, like Elijah, God is helping you to understand that the answer to your greatest need and also your life's greatest possible blessing comes from living in relationship, dependent on the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for these stories of who you are and how you have acted in the world. God, you alone are wise. You alone are good. Your plans are higher than our plans. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We thank you so much that through Jesus Christ, we have the favor of the powerful and able living God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in light of that reality. Um, 
give us faith to trust in your promises, to know that you are going to fulfill your word, Lord. And we just pray that as we walk this puzzling path that is uh, before us, that you would sustain us in your grace. Remind us of the love that you've poured out for us in Christ, in whose name we pray together. Amen.